Greetings, patrons, and welcome to this week's In Case You Missed It, I-C-Y-M-I for short. This is the patron-only segment wherein I bring you audio from across space and times uh, across the interwebs. This week's installment is going to be available to the public. This is typically a patron exclusive. I reserve these for supporters of Dead Punnett Society. These people uh, are thirsty. They crave the content. They want the good shit. Not only the stuff that I uh, include in A-sides and B-sides on a weekly basis for their enjoyment, but also stuff curated from other sources. Uh, be they YouTube, be they recorded lectures, uh, sometimes they're recent, sometimes they're old. I like to kind of have a nice smattering of all types of content for these uh, In Case You Missed It segments. So if you are not a patron of DPS and you enjoy the A-sides and you'd also like to get access to the full B-side each week, and additionally you'd like to get access to these ICYMI segments, consider heading over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable with. As a patron of DPS, you will be getting your money's worth. Lots to listen to if you find yourself bored in quarantine over the coming months. Anyway, this week's installment is a banger. I'd like to start off by giving a shout out to Philly DSA. The entire chapter is phenomenal. They do great work. Uh, especially, I'd like to give a shout out to Dustin Guastella, as well as Brianna and Marilyn, who were the people, the fine folks who gave me uh, permission to use today's educational resource that is available on their YouTube page. They, like many other chapters across the country, are holding educational workshops. They always do hold educational workshops. Typically, they're in person, uh, but since we are stuck in quarantine, they're doing their workshops over Zoom. And they're making those available on YouTube. I'll link to the page, their YouTube channel, in the show description if people would like to see what other content they have made available for folks. So what you're about to hear is a past guest of DPS, Connor Kilpatrick of Jacobin fame. He is going to be breaking down some of the articles that he wrote immediately following the departure of Bernie Sanders from the Democratic Party primary race in 2020. And uh, it's they're, they're a breath of fresh air. I think his perspective is really important. It's neither a, a hair on fire perspective, nor is it a uh, nothing new under the sun perspective. Uh, it's a balanced approach to taking seriously the the Democratic Party machine in 2020. You know, taking seriously the fact that Joe Biden is, for whatever reason, seen to be an old style New Deal Democrat. You know, perhaps because well, he's just old. <laughs> and uh, but as as Connor and Dustin will elaborate on. At length in the coming chat, Biden is anything but a New Deal Democrat. He is a uh, the prototype of a neoliberal third-way triangulationist Democratic Party establishment hack. We've seen already in the very wee hours of his campaign, he is turning to Larry Summers. All right. Larry fucking Summers for his economic advising, the man who has orchestrated many a neoliberal revolution during his time, uh, both as an advisor in the White House and out in civil society. The man has a rap sheet uh, that would fill the space of this entire episode if I were to go into it. Perhaps I will have an episode on Larry Summers at some time. I don't know. That, that would be a useful one. Uh, but until then, you guys enjoy this offering of uh, Connor Kilpatrick in conversation with Dustin Guastella and Philly DSA. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Um, so I, I decided to write it because it was kind of disturbing 
the speed with which we saw some really dumb narratives being distributed about what happened with Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, losing to Joe Biden and the speed with which they were coming from pretty powerful outlets was, you know, annoying, but kind of disconcerting. And you could tell that basically they uh, Vox and outlets like this had like a ready-made set of things to, you know, to, to create the meta narrative of what, you know, Bernie did wrong, which is that, you know, uh, he should have been nicer. Uh, you know, if he had been, you know, if he basically, if he had been, if he had been not so, uh, if he not, you know, beaten the drum about political revolution and the democratic establishment, then, you know, he'd be cruising to, you know, the nomination right now. Um, I just thought that was just so blatantly bullshit that, um, you know, I thought that we should kind of push back on that. And when I started doing that, I just was like, well, wait, I, you know, I want to, there's a lot I want to say about what happened because I also noticed a lot of, um, fellow socialists uh, were getting a little down in the mouth about everything. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm 38, which uh, I know it's not that old, but, you know, to be honest, compared to a lot of Bernie fans, uh, I'm on, I'm on the older side. Uh, I, a lot of people in DSA, I think are people who are pretty young and were politicized by 2016. Uh, Some were politicized after 2016, 2017. And uh, Bernie is kind of like all they they knew, all they've known. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring some perspective of someone who uh, was, you know, a college age person f- for all the 21st century so far. And looking at it from that perspective, I can't understand why anyone would be down in the mouth about what's happened. It's 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 miraculous and wonderful. Uh, I wish Bernie could have you know, won the presidency, but. Uh, I can't believe how far things have come. So I wanted to write about that um, because I, I, it's not, and it's not like I'm encouraging us to kind of just look at some disaster and like put on a happy face. Like I think that people should, yeah, we, it would have been great if he won, but I think that we should look at what Bernie did for us as not only did he rally support for, you know, a, a public goods focused, you know, left politics, which that, that alone right there is, a gift from above. Um, the other thing he did was he basically ran an experiment for all of us. Like <laughs> he ran a kind of like an artificial intelligence experiment of like what would happen if you ran the Democratic Party electorate on these issues against these forces. And we got to see what would happen. So I think watching what happened answered a lot of questions, a lot of things that the left has been debating about um, for a long time. And I think we got to, to some answers to the question. Well, I'm sure Dustin and I will, will go into that. But uh, I think that is beyond it. That is just priceless, what has been achieved by just doing that one thing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, we've seen a lot of postmortems that have a bit of a shoulda, coulda, woulda aspect to them. You know, yeah. what what Bernie could have done to have won the Democratic nomination. So your piece doesn't do that. And I'm wondering both why and do you think there's a shoulda, coulda, woulda case that if Bernie had only... We would, the, we'd have seen a different outcome. I think the only shoulda, woulda case is, um, first of all, I think that, I mean, for a while there, it looked really good. And I was like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And I should have realized, well, that's because it wasn't happening. But um, <laughs> I no, I don't think there's anything he could have really done differently. Because at the end of the day, he ran as, um, you know, on a, a, a political revolution at a time in which the, even before Hillary Clinton lost, 
the entire Democratic Party electorate was absorbing this kind of like mass media anti-Trump hysteria, frankly. And I think it just made the Democratic primary electorate was so scared of Trump, so freaked out, even more honestly than um, after Bush's first uh, three years, that I think they it, that was like probably the worst time for Bernie to make his case to a lot of people. Because at that point, Obama uh, looks great to the, you know, to this set of, of Democratic primary voters, uh, not just the rich liberals that we make fun of, but also like working class uh, Democrats. So I think that was an extremely tough sell, uh, a Bernie program at all during that time. The only way Bernie could have won would be to be to run as uh, old steady hand of the establishment. But guess what? Um, there, <laughs> that's just not, you're not going to be able to make that fly when his strength comes from the fact that he's been alone, you know, the, the lone voice of principle and, um, you know, progressive politics when the rest of the party was, you know, what they were. I do, I, the only could have, should have, would have is one aspect. And I think it actually, it seems like it's just us venting, but I think it actually has a really important lesson for us, which is the Warren factor. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to mistake if any of you have a kind of feel really pissed off about it in a kind of just like way I can, I, you're right to distrust that there's anything there, any lesson, you know, you're right to think like, it might just being much venting, but um, no, you're not there. There is something there, which is that what that is a coulda, shoulda, woulda in the sense that I, it's pretty clear that if she had dropped out before super Tuesday, even if she didn't endorse him, she had dropped out before super Tuesday, uh, Bernie, could have picked up some key victories on Super Tuesday enough to where he could have stayed in the race before. Guess what happened? We like the political process just shut down. So if that had happened, if we'd hit this coronavirus shutdown with Bernie, you know, closer to neck and neck, I don't, I'm not going to say he would have won, but that's a really different universe. So I think that's the one could have should have, and that was out of Sanders' hands. That was kind of. And this is the problem. That was also that was also out of our hands too, uh, in the sense that we didn't have any kind of organization to say no. There's one leader of the left in America, and it's this person, not you. And you're not running. And if you do, you will not get our official organizational endorsement. In fact, we will go to war against you. Um, that ended up biting us in the ass. Um, and even I felt the sense of, you know, I've always been very skeptical of Warren, to say the least. But even I felt kind of cowed by not only the Sanders campaign, um, and I, I can understand why they kind of, you know, they took a path of not, you know, going, you know, negative against her. So that made me think, okay, well, I don't, I have this feeling this is really not good she's running, but the Sanders campaign is like hands off. But uh, yeah, in a weird way, I actually think um, we couldn't have changed this, but she shouldn't, her running was a disaster for him. And uh, our lack of an ability to get her out or to make it a clear cut case that she has nothing to do with a progressive movement in the United States. And she's, you know, hurting it by doing this. Um, that's that's our failing. So, uh, let me, you know, Ramsey McDonald, uh, one of the founders of the British Labor Party, when he you know, went to coalition with the conservatives, uh, the British Labor Party, they didn't tweet snake emojis. They said. You're out of the Labor Party. You're done. You're gone. His name is a name that uh, a lot of people probably don't, a lot of Brits probably don't really know anything associated with the name other than, oh, traitor. <laughs> so there's something to be said for the power to discipline politicians.
Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about your piece, and, and I do, I agree with you, I think that the shoulda, coulda, wouldas sort of, they forget how powerful the party establishment is. And in particular, you know, you talked about South Carolina, and last week we had Adolph and Willie Leggett and uh, Cedric Johnson on to talk about South Carolina. And you talk about the power of the party establishment and what it was able to do. Yeah. So can you talk, because the, the typical Fortress Fairfax story that we like to tell is, oh, these suburban voters will never vote for a social democratic program. And that's true to a certain extent. But what we saw was a lot of working class voters voting for Biden. And yeah. that has a lot more to do with what's going on inside the Democratic Party. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, you know, this is a, something you and I have talked about, which was one, one thing that was a bit of a bitter pill to swallow was the, the realization that, um, that a lot of the Bernie energy in 2016 was an anti-Hillary vote. But that's not something to get like, oh, it wasn't real. Because, I mean, in 1980, did American you know, union households suddenly become free market fundamentalists and when they decided to swing to Reagan? No, like, you know, that's, that's politics, right? Like you can't look at it that way that, oh, then it, it wasn't real. But it, a lot of the 2016 uh, working class support for Bernie apparently was uh, anti, anti-Hillary folks um, because we saw that like Bernie uh, did pretty relative, you know, pretty poorly in Michigan with uh, union households in a way that he, he didn't uh, do in 2016. So, um, you know, Biden was someone who has successfully crafted this uh, image of himself as this, uh, it's, it's ironic because I think that the image he sells to himself is, oh, the old school pre-80s Democrat, uh, not this like Clinton 90s uh, neoliberal Democrat. And I, I think they buy it because one, he's good at the kind of like telegenic kind of like backslapping kind of smiling thing. I mean, we have to accept that he's, he is good at that. And that does resonate with people. But in a weird way, he seems so old that they assume that he must be like a great society liberal or something. When in fact, we know, and it's not something other people would know, but he's in a weird way. I mean, he was ahead of the curve on the neoliberal turn of the Democratic Party, even more so than Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was somewhat, if you believe the the stories from the, his first term, kind of uh, reluctant about uh, some of those decisions. Biden was uh, early on. <laughs> he was like, a, what is the a fir- a recent first adapter, adopter? What is the like tech term? Uh, early adopter? Early adopter, yeah. Yeah, early adopter. So yeah, but what, what was your question? Did I answer it? So the power of the party to sort of uh, guide voters in a certain direction. Oh, the power of the party. Uh, this is something that's important. Seth had you know warned me about this going in. He had shown me like, look, here's all the political science about how this works, which is Democratic Party primary voters when they, you know, they're a small percentage of the general electorate, but they are the percentage that looks to the leaders of the party to see, to get for signs and signals. So if we're like, well, were people, were these voters really paying attention to MSNBC that weekend to look at who endorsed who? The answer is yes. That's what party primary voters do. Um, So that, that's, pretty much that's the power that is wielded in these things. Um, and it's, the, to me, the really optimistic sign is that even with all that done, and it was, you know, they were reporting that Obama was part of it. Obama's got to be the most, you know, not sitting politician. He's got to be the most popular president in decades. Even then, Bernie was still getting, you know, what, 40% of the vote. That's a 
really good sign. <laughs> you know, like it's it's really good that um, even then that the, that Obama doesn't really have as much of a magic touch as he likes to to think and people like to say he has. So that's something to be pretty optimistic about. But um, it's what we do need to face in, for the time being is that right now a substantial part of the Democratic Party, and that includes, you know, stomp, stalwart Democratic Party voters and people who show up, um, even if they like Bernie's program, like like it a lot, they, they'd rather still vote for who the party leadership signals as their person. So that is a major hurdle. And that's something to keep in mind as to you're looking like who, who to bring over. Like we now know there's... Um, there's a lot of talk about the black vote and there's no such thing really as like a monolithic black vote. We know that Bernie actually ran really great with black voters in California and the West coast, uh, but really poorly in the the Southeast. But one thing that I think trips people up uh, and understandably, which is that if you look at the median black democratic primary voter, even in South Carolina, they're like down the line, social Democrats, right? They have like strong support for Medicare for all, for all these things. But at the same time, if they're not willing to buck the party, the party's, you know, choice, I'm, it's, I think we now know that's not a safe, you know, you don't, you can't look at a poll and be like, oh, well, they support Medicare for all and, you know, guaranteed income and blah, blah, blah. That's, they're going to vote for our guy. We now know that even running a half dead, <laughs> barely sentient, smiling creature like Biden, if that's who gets the party nods, that's, that's who they're going to go for. So I think one lesson there is a lot of things that the activists and fighting about, uh, you know, the left is like, well, how do we get, you know, understandably a DSA has, is a lot of college educated middle-class, which thus means disproportionately white kids. Well, how do we get like black workers to, to, to join? But I think what we see with in picking Biden, a man who was, uh, you know, a, a staunch friend of Strom Thurmond, anti-busing, uh, very. I mean, he's like the last conservative Democrat alive in in the true sense of a conservative Democrat, and it didn't hurt him with the black. Even Kamala Harris saying like, I, you know, I I was the girl on the bus, didn't do one thing. So the idea that that what the left, well, what the left should have done is we should have uh, campaigned harder on, you know, anti racism or something. I, I I I am very skeptical that that would have worked. I'm very very skeptical, which is why I think that the coulda shoulda wouldas. I don't think they're that useful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, today we're seeing uh, Stacey Abrams talk about how she would be a great VP to Biden. So I think that there's a clear move in the party to say we have to somehow figure out how to marry this ultra conservative Bidenism with, um, you know, the party's younger wing. But I want to talk a little bit about the future and the optimism, because Strangely, after all this talk about the party's against us, the money's against us, the media's against us, right. we've got this sort of behemoth uh, of this kind of phalanx of ruling class opposition, not to even mention, you know, the the strength of, of the Republican Party. Why is there any reason for a Bernie Sanders supporter to be optimistic in the future? Oh, the, a Bernie Sanders supporter should be extremely optimistic. Um and this is like something I tiptoed around on my piece and I put it at the very end because I knew a lot of Jack- Jackman readers would uh, kind of get skeptical about it, which is the generational cohort argument. And let me start this by saying I don't believe in generational politics is not real. That That's a made up thing. Uh, OK, Boomer is not a politics. 
But at the same time, uh, we can't dismiss the just, you know, Matt Carpenter talking about this, the overwhelming political science, the overwhelming political science that does identify that, that there is like generational consensus on, you know, the role of the state and what economics and whatever that does tr- harden in your early 20s and early adulthood. And it stays there for life. And yeah, there's a little, you know, wiggle room if you get, you know, you get become very rich or, you know, or you lose all your, you know, you were up in middle class, you lose all your money, it probably changes your views. But it's a very real phenomenon. And, you know, we can't just say something's because it's liberal political science. Well, we're Marxists, we're not going to listen to liberal political science. We have to like interrogate it. Is it, is it true? Or is it not? And it looks to be very true. So uh, I really don't see and, uh, you know, knock on wood, well, maybe we'll find out. When you look at the Leviathan of like political sentiment for people 45 and under, it's like they're living in a different world. And I went back and I looked at, you know, Gallup's done these polls on, you know, asking the role of the state or whatever in economy or life for decades. And there's been nothing close to the uh, age divide as there is right now between people under 45 and people uh, older than 45. And the other thing that's optimistic about is not even kids. And that's something I get to in my piece. I mean, I'm 38. I mean, am I, am I, am I the youth? <laughs> you know, um, I, you know, I'm married, I have a kid, I have another on the way. Like when you get to be where you're having 42 year olds being, having this broad social dem- democratic consensus and in, in a weird way, actually more importantly, 42 year olds that are saying like, you know, I don't give a shit who Barack Obama taps as his successor. I, I don't give a shit who Nancy Pelosi says is who we're going with. Like I want, I want universal healthcare. I want this and that. That's that's a very optimistic thing. Like that's they're going to be holding back a enormous number. Uh, you know, this giant tide of just honestly having hegemonically social democratic views on politics that is going to it's going to make a breakthrough. Um, it might be twenty years, but it, it's going to happen. I mean, you especially when you look at Zoomers, Zoom. Uh, that's the generation under millennials. Uh, they were already very pro-socialist, pinko and all these things. They were, uh, and they were a little less anti-capitalist, which I thought was interesting. They're very pro-social, but they didn't have quite as much anti-capitalist uh, sentiment as far as when asked as millennials, probably because they hadn't lived through a uh, horrible economic crash like my, my generation has. Uh, they did as uh, elementary school students. Well, guess what? That's now here. So, <laughs> you know, like I, I think the only thing that would change this is I get the, to this in my piece is, if we have a massive new uh, golden age of capital uh, with, you know, four or five percent, you know, GDP growth, uh, you know, guess what? I think Tom, you know, Piketty's right. I think the future is low growth and expanding inequality. So those conditions that that have shaped the left wing views of the people under 45, those conditions aren't changing anytime soon. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when people hear the generational argument, they immediately go to the 1960s and they say, oh, well, the flower power kids thought that oh. they would just they would just grow into a political revolution. So what's your response to that? Like, are, are we just going to grow up into a Bernie Krat revolution or like, I mean, are we just waiting around for the the boomers to stop voting? Oh, well, and to some extent, no, we obviously you, we keep doing everything we're doing because you have to build political power, right? You have to build, the, n- look, nothing happens at all without a, a rebirth of the labor movement, nothing. And, uh, you know, so that's that's the first step in all these things. But even that, what you just said about the, the boomers, the boomers were never that left wing. Like when you look at like, you know, who they were voting for, 
uh, and I put this in my article, McGovern, who was supposedly the guy who won capital L liberals and the kids and African-Americans and literally nobody else. Uh, he won the youth by like 50, like 54, 46 against Nixon, you know, like that's pretty pathetic. And those, that's, those were the boomers. So this, a lot of the, that idea is, uh, form it's, it comes from this the false notion that boomers were basically like us in political sentiment and they, you know, they just hardened and became more conservative. It's not true at all, but no, it's not, we can't be passive about this though. The point isn't that we we're going to just wait and it's going to fall on our laps. The point is that Bernie probably, you know, he could not, he could not have won. Right. But the thing, but what I'm arguing is that the next 15, 20 years is going to see, uh, you know, a lot of social change, a demographic, demographic turnover to create a situation where a Bernie could actually overcome these structures. And I wanted to talk, there's just two more things that I would like you to comment on before you, you sort of finish up here. And one is, you know, what is different about the Latino vote and why is it the case that so few media commentators have talked about Bernie's overwhelming strength among Latino voters? And finally, you talked about like the Overton window has shifted, right? Everything has shifted. But yeah. what, is that, what does that really mean? I mean, we, who cares what voters say they like if they're going to continue to vote for the Dem Party? So those two questions. And then if you want to give right. some final thoughts. Right. Well, the Overton window is like, it's a word I just associate with Glenn Beck. I always forget that it has a meaning outside of Glenn Beck. Um, <laughs> so, but no, the Latino voter thing is interesting. And anyone that says, you know, talks about like, well, you socialists don't care about people of color. Like it, it's, it's kind of, you have your answer there with the fact that no one is talking about this extraordinary thing that's just happened with Latino voters, the largest non-white uh, demographic in America, disproportionately working class. Uh, they, what is different about them? Uh, why, you know, were they breaking for this crazy social democratic insurrection? I think the answer is that they're up for grabs in a way that white workers and black uh, workers and black voters are not with the Democratic Party. Um, they don't have, uh, they haven't formulated this kind of like brokerage uh, system in the Democratic Party in the way that black voters did. Black voters have that system because of great left-wing victories by people whose politics, you know, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Russell, and people whose politics match our own. The irony of history is that created uh, this, you know, a direct conduit to leadership of the Democratic Party to, you know, shape uh, black constituencies. So um, Latino voters, though, are kind of coming to this with, uh, you know, without the, the ability to have any kind of like political broker, which means that they're up for grabs. I mean, Let's not forget the Culinary Workers Union, which is largely Latino. They went to like they started like a media war with Sanders before the Nevada caucus. And I was getting really nervous about that because, you know, Liz Warren played into it. Everyone, every uh, everyone else in the race was like licking their chops like, oh, they're we're going to smash Bernie. But guess what? They didn't like they, they revolted against their own union leadership uh, to vote for Bernie. So the lesson there uh, is very pragmatic for us, which is like, why the hell are we not running for congressional seats in New Mexico, where the Democratic Party is very weak, where you have, you know, a large Latino uh, population that's clearly up for this. Why are why is California not our like home base? Why are we talking all the time about New York City and Brooklyn? You know, fuck Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. You know, it's <laughs> like let's you know, it's, it's when you look at the demographics, it's like 
it is it is so ripe for getting Bernie type Bernie crap uh, congressmen and women elected. You know, Matt Carr pointed out that Bernie won like fifty percent in some California uh, congressional districts, and that was in a seven person race. So, I mean, there is no reason why we couldn't be grabbing those seats within two years. Honestly, like I, I I'm not in DSA, uh, so I don't really know how. This, but like, I really strongly think you guys should figure out a way to coordinate some investment of time, money, and resources into into the West. All right. And final thoughts, Connor. What do you think? Uh, what What do you think comes next, and and what should we be What should we be looking at? Uh, what? Uh, wow. I don't know. It's, it's, we're, we're in a quarantine, so everything just feels on pause. What we should be looking at, I think what we should be looking at is what does Bernie do now? And more importantly, I think it's time for us, and when I mean us, the broad group of people in the United States who are hardcore Bernie bros, uh, you know, whatever our political ideology specifically is, I think we need Bernie desperately to be in dialogue with us about taking his campaign and moving it towards the creation, and I know Dustin and Jared have written about this, into a party, you know, into a larger membership-driven structure, like, honestly, something like the DSA, and but bigger than DSA, taking, ev- like, everyone who's, like, pro-Bernie, uh, even if they wouldn't call themselves a socialist, and creating an organization, an organization that Bernie himself would say, I'm a member of, and then we could start running candidates saying, I'm a member of this, but, you know, I'm running on the democratic party ballot line or whatever that is a must and if it i will say that is something i am pessimistic about if that doesn't happen um this could the whole thing could be for nothing uh we really the transition from the bernie campaign 2020 into a membership i'm not talking about our revolution a membership driven organization in which people like ocasio-cortez rashida Tlaib, ilhan omar would identify as members of this organization and run as members of this organization. That is a must. All right, thank you, Connor, and thanks for thanks for joining us. It was really helpful. I think your article for a lot of us was the uh, the cathartic postmortem we needed. And somebody put it in the chat for those of you who haven't read it yet. I think you should really read it. Um, I think we're a little bit over time, so oh, I'm sorry. Gonna, that's all right. It's my fault. Um, I'm going to hand it back to Marilyn, and she can introduce the next speaker. Thanks again, Connor. Thank you. Bye, guys.